Okay, just to put this out there, perhaps you are somebody who has not been looking forward to the inevitable deluge of 10th anniversary 9-11 coverage on basically every media outlet that exists. But think for a second about what it's like for the 9-11 families and survivors. Like Lynn Simpson, she was on the first show we did after 9-11, telling the story of working on the 89th floor of World Trade Center 1 when the planes hit, and how she made it down the stairs and out of the building with about a minute to spare. I caught up with her last week. I wish that the people wouldn't make such a big deal about the 10th anniversary. And I'm very happy when September 12th comes along. You're saying in a way that for you as somebody who, who escaped from the World Trade Center, you'd, you'd pretty much rather not be looking back so intensely each year. Then, If that's so, then, then who are these commemorations for? Well, that's, I, I, I don't know. Marianne Fontana's husband, Dave, was a firefighter killed in the South Tower. She was also on our show years ago, and she told me last week when we checked with her that she and her son are going to spend 9-11 not at any of the public events, but instead they're going to visit the spot at a park where Dave proposed to her years ago and where she later scattered his ashes. And then they're going to have a quiet family dinner together. See, I, I was wondering if when these anniversaries come up, if, if it's comforting or if it's more like, okay, let's relive the worst day of your life. Um, yeah, it's complicated. You know, I always feel like never forget is such an odd, you know, the the kind of phrase of 9-11 where it's like never forget, but to heal you have to forget. Here we are, 9-11. And who exactly wants to watch the footage from that day again? Think about it all over again. And we thought today on our program, rather than look back at that one day in 2001, it would be a lot nicer to spend most of this hour looking at where we have come since. After all, 9-11 happened to us. But the decade since, we created that ourselves. And this seems like a good time to measure just how far we've come. And to do that, we have reached out today to some of the interviewees who have appeared on our show in the last decade, whose lives seem to tell some piece of the story of what the world has gone through since September 11th. We checked in with them again uh, to see what has happened to them. And it has has been really interesting this week, putting this together and hearing what has happened and where they are in their lives now. It's been a decade, but as you'll hear, for most of them, it still somehow feels like they are at the beginning of something in their lives, something they are still figuring out. We bring you their stories on this 10th anniversary of 9-11. From WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life, distributed by Public Radio International. Stay with us. Ekwan, cobble, 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 chameleon. Hello, hello. Okay, today is um, September the 11th, 2002. It's actually my last night in Peshawar. I'm, I'm at a relative's house. A lot of people have been affected by September 11th, but like our family is literally like turned upside down. Like even me, like my whole plans on my life has changed. When September 11th, 2001 happened, Haider Akbar was 16. His dad ran a hip-hop clothing store in the San Francisco area. Haider thought that maybe he was going to become a mortgage broker like his older brother someday. But his dad and some of his uncles had fought the Soviets in Afghanistan, driving the Soviets out back in 1989. His family fled the country when the Taliban came to power. Until September 11th. After Americans drove the Taliban from the capital, his father's old friend Hamid Karzai got in touch. Karzai appears in a family photo album in a picture that was taken at Disneyland maybe 30 years ago, baby-faced, standing next to Goofy. Now Karzai was leading the new interim government in Afghanistan, and he convinced Haider's dad to sell his business and move back to help out. And Haider, who'd never been in Afghanistan, but who'd been raised on stories about all the family friends and family members who were heroes in the struggle, he wanted to go too. And he recorded himself on those trips for our show. Radio producer Susan Burton took dozens of hours of recordings and turned them into two programs. One, documenting what happened on Haider's first trip in 2002, when his father was the spokesman for the new Afghan government. In a second program the following year, when Haider's dad was now the governor of a particularly unstable area called Kunar Province. Over the course of these two hours, we hear Haider grow up. When he first arrives in Kabul, he is completely green, thrilled in this 
fanboyish way just to be there. Today was a really interesting day. I went to the palace today, and it was this incredible, like, it's almost like going through a movie, like this old, the gates and how they open, and the huge locks. <laughs> almost looked like you're visiting someplace in Disneyland or Universal Studios. But yeah, it was the real thing. You have, like, infamous warlords walking this way and, like, famous ministers walking that way. It was pretty, pretty exciting. I mean, it's, like, the equivalent, I think, of like the Lollapalooza or something, going backstage and getting to meet all these like rock stars going back and forth. It was kind of like that. <laughs> and it's a nerdy and dorky as that sounds. That's pretty much how it was like for me. On these two trips, carrying a tape recorder, Hyder sees a lot. He works as an interpreter for the U.S. military, including translating for a man, Abdul Wali, who dies while in custody after being interrogated by the Americans. He gets caught in a firefight. He walks through the devastation after a car bomb. He befriends people especially his driver and companion, Sartor. And he vows to come back. Hey, Haider. Hello? Hey, Haider, can you hear hey, me? It's Haider. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes, yes, I can hear you. Where are you right now? Uh, I'm in Kabul. Are you in an office? Are you in your house? Uh, yeah, I'm in my house, which also doubles up as my office. Um, I reached Haider last week by phone in Afghanistan. In Some quick facts. He's 26. After creating two amazing radio shows and writing a book with his producer, Susan Burton, he transferred from the community college that he was at to Yale University, where he graduated from. He now lives on the third floor of this house that I reached him at, and on the second floor is the NGO, the non-governmental organization that he created. Basically, they go out and survey Afghans to understand what they're thinking and what they want for international aid groups and others who are working in the country. Also living in Hyder's house these days, Sartor, his friend, and Youssef, He's one of his father's old aides and a close family friend. Hyder's uncle, Rauf Mama, comes and stays with them sometimes, too. Rauf Mama's been driven from his own home near the Pakistan border. So I'm just going to launch right in, okay? I have like a million questions here. You ready? Sure, sure. I'm ready. Yes, I am ready. So, so when you were last on, on the radio show in 2003, uh, the, the final thing you were talking about at the end of that show was about your uncle, Rauf Mama, uh, who is a war hero from fighting the Soviets and has one eye. And, and, then, and then at the end of that show, you, you talked about this. This is probably about 1 o'clock at night right now. I couldn't sleep tonight. It's because of that interview was so emotional. You know, when I asked him what was the hardest part of ever of, you know, everything you've been through, you know, you mentioned, you know, having to sleep next to this friend just hours after he was killed and the hail pouring down on him and him trembling in that cold. One of the reasons I wanted to interview my uncle before I left was because I knew it was going to really, you know, have a lasting impression on me. And just in case I ever, I ever get soft and I can, like, you know, maybe I should just stay in America or maybe, you know, that image him having to do that will at least keep me going for another five years <laughs> and we have a really close relationship and he really has high hopes for me and he tells me all the time that he thinks I'm so smart and that I'm gonna do so much for this country I'm gonna be pulled back here I know it I just can't I can't let my uncle down so you were a teenager when you recorded that. What's it like to hear that now? Disappointing. It's disappointing to hear that. Um, because I feel like in those years, although there was a lot of problems to deal with, it was still about how how are we going to turn things around? How is Afghanistan going to have a better future? There was still an excitement in the air about the country moving forward. And now it's more about how to make sure that it doesn't go completely to again. It's sobering hearing Haider talk like this. If there were going to be one optimist left in Kabul, it will be Haider. But he says lots of people there now are wondering which side is going to win in Afghanistan. The Americans, the Taliban, who? Kunar province, where his dad was governor, is in terrible shape. And the Taliban are so strong there that Haider says that nobody wants to be seen as working with the Americans anymore. You can hear in Haider's voice how different this is and how different he is compared to when he first got there. I asked him on the phone about what life in Kabul is like these days. Back in 2002, he remarked on how he spent a month and a half barely ever speaking 
with a woman or a girl. Here, I'll start counting, and I'll look for a woman's face, and I'll sort of tell you how long it takes me. Burka, 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 man. Burka, burka. Still no woman. And when he returned in 2003? Kabul has changed tremendously. Right now, there's like three girls in front of me. All they have is like a loose chadar, but I see like jeans underneath the cloth. Last year, burkas were probably about 95%. This year, I'd say they've dropped to under a quarter. One out of four. Hey, Hyder, what's it like now? It's gotten much more serious than that, Ira. I feel like at that time, again, because there was some hope there, there were some you know, things there you could kind of look at things like the burqa as uh, an indication of the change. But when we just got a call a couple hours ago, Sartor being told that three people in his village were kidnapped, when Sartor's son, we had to drag away, Sartor's son is 19 years old, 18 years old, uh, and he's in Kunar, and he is exactly of Taliban fighting age, and his father is becoming very worried about him, and we have to drag him out and make sure he stays with us here in Kabul because the Taliban are recruiting him, and it's, 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 it's a problem in our own home now. It's a problem with Sartor, it's a problem with Yosef's kid. Yosef's kid is 10 years old, and one night in the village, sort of everybody's kind of armed, so he, some, he heard some kind of loud bang at night once real quick, and he ran to, to go grab the Kalashnikov, and he asked uh, his wife, he said, oh, have you seen a Kalashnikov? You know, you, they usually have this place where they hide it, and they looked, and the Kalashnikov was missing. So he started investigating it and found out that later on it ended up being his 10-year-old son who had taken it. And when he asked him why he had taken it, he said, oh, because I'm going to shoot at the Americans because they're infidels and invaders. And uh, he's 10 years old. And so Yosef got very worried about his son. And uh, he took the Kalashnikov from him. And uh, after that, he went. The funny thing is, uh, kind of gives you a sense of who really has the control there. He went back to the Taliban themselves and said, look, my son is 10 years old, and because of all the propaganda and all the stuff that you guys are using here, he's getting riled up, and he wants to steal the Kalashnikov and take pot shots with Americans. So can you go and talk to him and say, you know, that the Taliban cut off the hands of people that do uncoordinated attacks, so you can't do anything without permission or something like that. So he doesn't do anything crazy. So... That's kind of more an example of how much the situation has changed and I think gives you a better indicator of the momentum and direction of this country than the amount of burgers I've seen. And, uh, sorry, that's our doorbell and it's really packing. Do you need to get that? Uh, no, no, I think so. I was going to check who it is. Okay. I told him that I'm going to be busy. Upstairs, okay. So I'll be okay. One of the things that's interesting listening to these shows from 2002 and 2003 is how hopeful everybody is about the new Afghan president, Hamid Karzai. And uh, you talk back in those shows about how you have fond memories of him visiting with your dad when you were little. Uh, We we start one of those shows uh, showing Karzai being very charming uh, shortly after coming to power, uh, speaking to Afghans living in the United States. Here's a clip of him at at Georgetown University reading a question from from a card. Okay, specifically, how would you suggest the younger generation of Afghans living in the U.S.? And, uh, okay, <laughs> specifically, there are areas in which you have studied. Those of you who have gone through university and have acquired degrees in, in various fields, medicine, engineering, computers, uh, management, uh, banking, uh, business administration, all that, these are the areas, statistics, by the way, we need that very much, accounting, auditing, so do come. In addition to that, if somebody wants to be the president, she or he is also welcome. So all of you are welcome. And you, of course, are one of the young people who actually took him up on that call and went back. Mm-hmm. So, so since then, his government, the New York Times, and this is in news stories, not in editorials, the New York Times refers to his government as one of the most corrupt in the world. President Obama has called uh, Hamid Karzai unreliable and ineffective. Secretary of State Clinton says he runs a narco state. Uh, He faces an internal insurgency. How have your feelings about Karzai changed over the last decade? I see Karzai as a sort of very tragic 
Shakespearean, almost sort of like a King Henry kind of figure. I uh, see him as an individual whose intentions and heart was in the right place. You don't see him as corrupt? I, I, yes, I do. I do see him as corrupt. But I see that corruption more as a weakness rather than a greed. I don't think he's hoarding millions and millions of dollars into Swiss bank accounts so that he can live comfortably. I think he's just put in a circumstance in which he doesn't know how to deal with it and he doesn't have the backbone to deal with it. So, you know, my father in 2005 walked out on him and hasn't looked back since. He said that I like you as a friend, I like you as an individual, but you're not fit to lead this country. And I didn't spend my whole life struggling for this country so that I can ruin my name and reputation by being associated with this government. Since then, Stad has been going back and forth between Afghanistan and California. Hyder, meanwhile, was briefly engaged to somebody who he met at Yale, whose family was from the Middle East. And she was willing to move to Afghanistan with him for a few years, but when it became clear to everybody that Hyder intended to stay, even after they had children, even if the country continued to fall apart, at some point he had to decide between her and Afghanistan. And he chose Afghanistan. So that's kind of what happened with that. I feel like I will have to be paying a price for what I want to do here. I feel like it's something much bigger than me sometimes, you know, and I feel like I can't just run away from it. Hyder says that he doesn't believe that he's doing much good for the country, just running his NGO. And this is another change from who he was back when he was in college, and we used to joke with him about how someday he was going to be either the foreign minister of Afghanistan or he would be out fighting in the hills with his uncle. Now he's in it for real, and he's become a hard-eyed pragmatist. Lately, he said to his old producer, Susan Burton, that He's beginning to wonder if it's possible to be good and also stay relevant in Afghanistan. The people who are rising to the top, the people in power, are people with guns and their own armed groups, people who aren't afraid to use violence and intimidation. And with that in mind, Haider is thinking about basically creating his own militia. He would do that by going into the security business with some partners. He'd want it to be something that would eventually employ hundreds of armed men with their own trucks and their own ammunition, so he could actually be a serious player in what happens in the years ahead with the help and the political connections of his father and his uncles and all their allies. If he's going to be serious, he says, he needs resources and he needs guns and he needs people who shoot guns. And he's conflicted about that. Is that something I, I don't like it? You know, to be honest with you, I don't. But knowing the situation of the country, knowing that it's not very stable right now, knowing that the use of force is something that's respected here. If you want to be relevant in that, you need to have the resources to be relevant. I didn't go to Yale to become a warlord, but (laughs) um, I don't know, you know, given the realities of the situation, given the realities of my goals. Like in the States, in the States, the political systems are a bit more set. Like somebody can emerge politically because you can emerge through the party which works on resources and campaign funding and all of that kind of stuff that you need to be politically relevant through the political party system. Here, those things don't exist. They're kind of done on force of personality, and you have to kind of be able to use your own force of personality to get both sides on, whether it's politics or the resources. But you're saying the the fear is to basically just like who you'd be associating with, that you'd be involved with a lot of uh, kind of... Yeah, 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 who you associated with, what you get comfortable with, um, you know, like, it's kind of a joke. But let's say 20, 30 years down the line, I am surrounded by armed guards and I have become a dictator and I have become an ass for everybody. I think people can look back at these years and be like, wow, okay, this is where the transformation was beginning. That's what I feel like sort of right now. And so have you already made this decision? Um, no. I don't think I've made a decision yet. Um, I think I'm still weighing the pros and cons. And uh, have I tested the waters? Yes. Um, Am I looking at the possibilities of how this exactly would pan out? Yes. I was speaking to to this uh, guy that I had met here. Uh, he's an older guy, he's like in his 70s, he's a French guy, his name is Dr. Gerard Chalion. 
he was kind of been all over the world. I can't name a conflict that he wasn't either a participant or an observer in. You know, like he trained the Mujahideen here in the 80s. He was with the Palestinians in the 60s and 70s. He was in Eritrea. He was in all these various conflicts. So I asked him, you know, you've seen all these different kinds of movements and you've seen many young, motivated individuals like myself in these kind of circumstances. And what would you tell me to do? And he said, lay low. Lay low till 2014. I think that's kind of when people are predicting the end game of being played out in this country, where some kind of situation gets established, some kind of understanding between, okay, what exactly do Americans envision here? What exactly do the Taliban? And that's when somebody like you can emerge. You don't emerge in this kind of situation because it's too murky, it's too dirty. Um, just stay alive, he said. To stay alive till 2014, and he told me that that's not going to be an easy task for you. Haider Akbar in Kabul. The book that he wrote with Susan Burton uh, when he was still here in the States is called Come Back to Afghanistan. Act two, in the Garden of the Unknown Unknowns. Marianne Fontana, who you heard from a little bit at the beginning of the show, had the experience after 9-11 of going from a normal life to suddenly finding herself at events with the mayor and her senators and the governor. She met President Bush three times. She was interviewed everywhere. This is because after her husband, Dave, died in 9-11, he was a firefighter, she started an organization that's now called the September 11th Families Association, and she was heavily involved in the politics that followed, and especially in trying to get better pay for New York firefighters. We had her on the radio show back in 2005 to tell a few, truthfully, incredible stories about what it was like in this new life that she found herself in. And we only have time to play a part of one of those stories here. Um, This story takes place two years after 9-11 on the anniversary. 9-11 also happens to be her wedding anniversary. And there was a small event at the White House that year, and the vice president of her organization, her friend Lee, who was a firefighter and who lost a firefighter's son, thought it would be helpful for them to go, but uh, Marion didn't want to go. I did not feel comfortable with this administration at all right. and what they were doing. And so, oh, this is in the run-up to um, Iraq by then. Right. Oh, yeah, we were already in Iraq. And so I felt very uncomfortable. I said, oh, you don't want me to go. I said, and he always teased me about, you know, having a big mouth and saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. And and he said, no, I absolutely want to go with you. Lee told her that they needed to go because they had to talk with New York Governor Pataki and he was going to be at this dinner. And so she went. He told me it was formal. So I put on this sparkling blue gown um, and we arrive at the White House and go through this elaborate security system. And I walk out into the Rose Garden and um, and everyone's wearing business attire, black suits and including mm. the women in brown suits. And I am in this sparkling blue <laughs> dress that I wore at my <laughs> sister's wedding. And I just saw all the Secret Service men kind of I could just imagine what they were whispering into their lapels like. Whore in the blue dress has just entered the, <laughs> the garden, <laughs> you know, and I was furious at Lee, who's, you know, he's in his late 50s and, you know, short, and I, I, I felt like I looked like his hooker, basically. So we went in and... Um, <laughs> Which is really not a good feeling in the rose garden. No, I was so <laughs> self-conscious. And so I was just playing with the dog because I'm just, you know, Lee made me promise not to do anything inappropriate, not to talk to anybody you know, about my liberal politics. And then, you know, I'm looking around this odd conglomeration of people, including Maury Povich and Condoleezza Rice and the Rumsfelds. And it was just a very, and I felt so uncomfortable. I just wanted to go home. I I really was feeling kind of emotional about the anniversary and feeling like a hypocrite being there. And so we we got um, up to Governor Pataki and you know, we chatted for a while and said what we need to say, and then I was ready to go home. But then there was a buffet dinner and a film to see, so we had our buffet dinner, and I sat all the way in the back of the garden at the farthest picnic table in the back, and um, I'm eating quietly, waiting for Lee to join me, and um, I hear someone say, um, is this seat taken? And I look up, and it's Donald Rumsfeld and his wife, and they want to sit at the table with me, and I, I was like, no, nobody's sitting here, go ahead. So they sat down, and Lee joined me, 
And of course, Lee, having served in Vietnam and, and you know, having about 28 medals on his Class A firefighter uniform, immediately got into the conversation. And um, Donald Rumsfeld had just gotten back um, from Afghanistan, so they were, you know, chatting about all this stuff. And I decided I would be a good friend to Lee and just talk to his wife, Joyce, about his daughter's rock climbing. So that's what I was being good, but half an ear was listening to their talk and I was getting more and more upset and I could feel my face turning red and then finally um, Rumsfeld turned and said, Marion, what do you what do you think about all of this? And I said, Oh, you really don't want to know what I think and he's like, No, no, I actually I really do. I'm I'm curious what you what you think. And I Lee I look at Lee, <laughs> you know, to get permission <laughs> if this is okay and he nods and I said, Well actually I think you used the death of my husband to go into a country of no business being in it felt kind of like a cop-out at the time because I, I, there was so much more I wanted to say. Because there's some more direct thing that you can say than you're taking the death of my husband and using it to start an inappropriate <laughs> war. Like, like what, is the, what is the mean version of that? Like, what, what, what were you holding back? No, I think I was actually being good. I think if Lee hadn't kicked me under the table, I probably could have said more. And um, he just kind of, everything kind of got quiet. Rumsfeld nodded and he said, thank you, and turned back to Lee, and they continued their conversation. Soon, uh, there was a screening of a 9-11 documentary, and so they went to this tiny screening room in the White House. She's one row behind the president. And then, so I was kind of up against the wall, and Lee was sitting next to me, and Condoleezza Rice and some other guy, and and then the film began, and I didn't even think about what the film was about. And, uh, you know, the screen opens, and it's the towers burning, and the shaky camera's filming it. And I... And I lost it like I've never lost it publicly in my life I just started almost like having an epileptic seizure of grief sobbing really loud I'm and I had to get out of there and so I literally just stood up like a hysterical woman which I'm not but suddenly became and started clawing my way out of the row and you know um, stepped on Condoleezza Rice's foot and, and they had pulled a curtain over the door and I couldn't find the knob and I'm like at the door kind of shaking the curtains and Lee's behind me trying to find the door and and, and do you think it's just the combination of, of like being in the most alien environment possible and then suddenly just like missing your husband so intensely like it's all coming together at once yeah, like that's exactly. why absolutely yeah. that's exactly what happened and it was the anniversary and I really wanted to be home with my son and you know, and I, I had that feeling in my stomach like I made the wrong choice. I shouldn't have come down. I talked to Marianne again uh, last week. She's no longer heading the September 11th Families Association. She got tired of uh, the politics within the organization and, and the bigger politics, too, actually. And she told me that she started to feel like she couldn't make this one day in 2001 the rest of her life. Her son, Aiden, who was in kindergarten on 9-11, is now 15 years old. And she and I talked about what these anniversaries are like for him. For him, it's harder now that he's older and understands it. I think he was so um, young and didn't really comprehend what was happening. And I kind of kept things on a very simple, easy to understand scale for him. And I, I avoided letting him see the images of 9-11. Um, I never took him to ground zero. I really tried to you know, protect him from a lot of the violence of 9-11. That said, now that he's older and he's much more political and interested in politics and, you know, he has a lot of questions and I try to answer them as best as I can. But I know the Bin Laden capture was a very hard day for him at school. Um, all the kids were talking about it, congratulating him, and he, you know, he really had a hard time wrapping his head around that. So yeah, I read you wrote about that in, in Salon.com right. uh, back when it happened in May. Right. And and you wrote that when he went off to school the morning after Bin Laden was mm-hmm. going on a Sunday, so on Monday he went to school, and that morning when you dropped him off, he said he felt like a big weight off of his shoulders. And then you wrote a little after one o'clock, uh, Aiden called. Uh, you wrote, he was uncharacteristically upset. He wanted to come home after school. Everyone's talking about Bin Laden. In every class, they're happy he's dead, but I don't feel happy. Yeah, he kind of was coming to terms with his own feelings about it. I think he felt uncomfortable with the celebratory nature of what was happening in New York. He had heard that people were down at Ground Zero partying all night, and 
he said to me, doesn't that make us like them? You huh. know, and it just seemed wrong to him. Yeah, he said it felt a little archaic. I mean, he didn't use the word archaic, but he said it seemed a little medieval. And I, I kind of agree. In 2005, you said that, that you felt like you were still kind of like a walking symbol for what had happened uh, to the country. Has that has that worn off or has that gotten worse as time has gone on? Um, well, I think for the people who know me and um, my friends and family, I don't think they ever saw me that way. Thank goodness. But um, I think it is hard. I think dating, it makes dating very challenging. Um, I had dates cry when I tell them the story, which is you know, a little uncomfortable to yeah. say the least. I guess I'm like, I it's guess this is not sexy. very romantic. Yeah, yes. no. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've had, yeah. you know, a lot of strange and different reactions from different men on huh. dates about like, like what? Um, well, I, I, I always hear everyone's nine 11 story. Um, almost always, which I appreciate. I, I, it's understandable. I think they want to connect. Um, yeah. Sometimes it feels a little strange where they'll say, oh, 9-11, yeah. Um, I was in Queens and my subway couldn't get, you know, to, to my stop. And it was really, really hard. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can beat that. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that's tough. And I guess everything's relative. I try yeah. to have patience and understand. Yeah. But, you know, it's it's sometimes like, really? Did you find yourself just uh, at some point you just stopped telling strangers? I have tried that. Yes, I um, I do try to avoid it. Do you, do you hope that this 10th anniversary after this, the anniversaries will pass with less ceremony and commemoration? You know, I'm not sure. Um, I have mixed feelings about it. I mean, I do like that people remember. But, um, you know, for me personally, I want to forget. So it's kind of I'm not sure. I feel like 9-11 happened to everybody. And so I think people have this strong draw to come back to Ground Zero or to come back to 9-11 and connect with that. For me, it's not. I like to connect with the kind of moment in time that was so unique after 9-11 where the world kind of came together for a second. And You mean everybody was getting along for a second? Yeah, yeah. It kind of gave me hope for us as a culture and as a world. And I feel like we've moved in the complete opposite direction of that, that we're more divided than we've ever been before. It's just very hard to watch. The thing you're describing is the thing you wish people would dwell on. I feel like even that oh, somehow has become part of the like the standard blah, blah, blah of, yeah. of this day. You know what I mean? I feel <laughs> right. like like if you were if you were to tune on to the television coverage that day, I'm sure that there'll be a lot of things in the speeches about like the moment after when we all came together. Right. And, and yeah. I feel like there's like it's almost like a cliche. It's almost a cliche in a way that that's that's it's that's hard to even like to get back to that feeling. Absolutely. And yet, you know, anyone who was involved, when I mention that, they nod vigorously because they do remember that. And it was very fleeting. Um, but, I mean, it was so profound. I really don't know if I would have made it through uh, that time without having had the kind of whole world wrap their arms around me is what it felt like. Marianne Fontana. She wrote a book about her experience after 9-11 that is a lot like the story she's telling here on the radio. It's called A Widow's Walk. She's now working on a book about her dating experiences since 9-11 called The Middle of the Bed, and is looking for a publisher. Coming up, a story that generated more email than almost anything we have ever broadcast. We return to see what's happened in the years since. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International when our program continues. This American Life from Ira Glass. Today, for the 10th anniversary of 9-11, we are returning to people who we've had on the show during the past decade, people whose lives were changed by 9-11, because we wanted to see what's happened to them as the decades proceeded. We've arrived at Act 3 of our show. Act 3, put on a happy face. On 9-11, where were you when that happened? I was actually in war games. And Gulfport, Mississippi. This is reporter Chris Neary talking to John, who was in the Navy back then. What are war games? Playing war, you know. You do live fire, stay out in the field for two or three weeks. And, you know, at that time, 
we haven't even put on our gear or anything. We're getting ready to go out to the field for war games. And they say someone ran in and was like, a plane just hit the Twin Towers. And we looking, we all looking, we flipping through our manuals like, what do we do? What do we do? What are we supposed to do? Like, it's a, like this was a situation that they gave us. So wait, so you didn't think it was real? You thought? It, no, I didn't think it was real. You thought that 9-11 was, was a war games exercise? Yes. And they take this stuff kind of serious, the war games. So we don't know what's going on. We really didn't know what was going on. When did you find out that it was real? Maybe like four hours later. Did you realize that this means that I might really be a soldier? Yes. Yes. They told us to um, go home and get ready. (laughs) John ended up serving in Iraq as a mortarman. Chris met him once he was out of the service four years ago in the fall of 2007 while reporting a story on PTSD. And they hit it off right away. John was especially open about what he was going through. He was direct. He was funny. He answered the sorts of questions that reporters ask, which doesn't always happen. After Chris filed his story, they talked on and off for months. Then one day, after Chris hadn't heard from John in a while, he learned that John had attacked his fiancée in one of those grisly incidents that have made the news from time to time. Here's Chris. I read the details in a 20-page police report. John slammed her head into the floor, tried to choke her, and cut her. Badly. Then he sat down on the floor of the kitchen with a knife and started slicing at his own chest. Reading all this, I was shocked. Afterwards, he couldn't remember what he'd done. That sometimes happens with PTSD. This American Life producer Alex Bloomberg and I visited John in jail shortly after the attack. I remember waking up and here, here, still bleeding. You know, I got stitched up some. And, um, I'm like, you know, who cut me and all this? They're like, well, you did. When you, when you learned what happened, when you woke up and people told you what happened, do you remember, like, what your first thought was or your first emotion? Was it like... I thought I, my first thought was that I killed my daughter. Oh, really? I thought I killed my daughter. That was my first thought. I, I know that I was capable of it, you know. In no way was I like, oh, no, not me, you know. Anytime I go outside, you know, especially around people that I like, you know, I try to limit the time. That's most of the time why I'm so paranoid, to keep them safe. And it's like, I got to keep them safe from me, you know. It was hard to imagine him ever getting back to a normal life. I've talked with John just a few times since then. And when I checked in last month, three years after we talked in jail, things were a lot better. He is, remarkably, on good terms with his ex-fiancee and their daughter. He has a new girlfriend, a veteran herself. And he's pursuing singing and music production, things he dreamed of doing before the military. When I got to the studio to talk with John, he was upbeat and funny. Hey, you sound really good, man. I practice in the mirror every morning. Really? Yeah, I don't want people to think I'm crazy. What do you practice? Being happy, chipper. If I have any hope to ever, like, reintegrate into a civilian world, I have to not wear a scowl, you know. I mean, I have to be friendly. You know, I know it seems weird. You know, how do you forget how to do it? But it's, it's, it's hard. Do you feel like now the way you present yourself to others has changed, but on the inside you're still the same as you were in 2008? Um... The the same with coping skills. I mean, that's why I'm the, I'm the same. I, I have the same problems. I just know how to mask them. And I know how to comfort myself somewhat without having to go get wasted, you know, without having to, you know, just be blackout drunk. Small, closed spaces still scare John. He gets panic attacks. It's hard for him to be around people for very long, which makes recording and producing music difficult. I mean, I'm pretty sure everybody knows that crazy Vietnam vet that everybody has in their family or that's on the block, that lives on your, in your neighborhood, and he's out there in his war pants, cutting the grass with his flag up. You know, that's probably going to be me in 30 years, man, just different color pants. Mine going to be tan. You know <laughs> what I mean? It's not really, um, it doesn't really go away. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean... You know, 9-11 for the U.S. was, and for you, and ended up being a call to war, you know? How do you think we've done as a country? 
Are you trying to get me in trouble, man? <laughs> Seriously, nope. you ask me that question? <laughs> I'm going to ask you that question, yeah. I don't know, man. I think, you know, I don't really like talking political stuff at all. You know what I mean? Right. I love the military, you know. I love the military. Yeah, yeah. I love what the military has done for me. But, I mean, I feel like I wish that, um, I don't know. I, when, when people's overseas dying, you know, and I'm sitting here at a radio station talking about how does it feel, I feel like it's not going good. I wish that these guys was home. It's 10 years, man. Chris Neary lives in New York. Akpur, what's Arabic for fjord? In 2007, we told the story of an Iraqi who worked as an interpreter for U.S. forces. His name is Bassem, and like many Iraqis who helped the U.S., his life was threatened by other Iraqis. He was sent a DVD that showed a fellow interpreter, a colleague, a guy who he knew, being beheaded and warning him that he would be next. So Bassem fled the country with his wife and baby, and ended up in Europe. At the time that we did our story, we didn't even want to say which country he was in, but now he's feeling safe enough that I can tell you that it is Norway, and he's doing great. Out of the millions of Iraqis who were made into refugees or displaced by the war, he is possibly in the best possible position. As he says, he went from the most dangerous country in the world to one of the safest. I can say that uh, today, uh, me and my family are going through uh, the same hopes and fears or worries, like any other person who was born and raised in a, in a normal country that has not been affected by atrocities like war and um, embargo for 12 years. Today we are studying, working, making sure that um, my son would have uh, a good future here in this country. How old is your son now? He's uh, six years old. He has just st- started in, uh, in school. Is it sobering to see him speaking better Norwegian than you do? <laughs> no, not at all. But it is a little bit annoying sometimes at home. Uh, it's just yesterday my son told me that there is another boy at uh, third grade who was running behind him. And I, and I just couldn't get the real sense of the meaning of the word that he was using. I, and I couldn't know whether the other boy was chasing him or whether he just playing with him or whether... So, and I just had to read his body language because I see him, he was telling it as if it was a game, if you know what I mean. So then I was kind of, uh, okay, then I don't need to, to talk to the teacher. Is your son old enough to ask about Iraq and, and if you're ever going to go back there? Uh, yes. We are trying to give him some answers of which it's enough to satisfy his curiosity, but it is not so harmful for his childhood. He asked, why? Why did we come here if we are not originally born here? And I said, we come here because, as you can see, it is uh, easier to live here. It is, uh, then your mother can study further. You can go to the kindergarten and play with all these toys, and people are funny and good and things like that. We didn't tell him that we were uh, actually refugees. We tell him that we have chosen this place. No, that seems like a nicer story to tell a six-year-old than we were running for our lives. <laughs> no, we, we cannot tell him that. Now, I'm calling you in the, in the anniversary of, of 9-11. Mm-hmm. Does, does this anniversary mean anything to you personally? Do you usually view uh, 9-11-2001 as a day that affected your life? Um, yeah, of course. Uh, it has affected my life and it has affected the lives of millions of Iraqis, even though that we were not involved uh, in those attacks in any possible manner. Uh, We are still wondering why it actually affected our life and it didn't affect uh, the countries who were actually uh, involved in supporting and financing those terrorists. You mean Saudi Arabia? Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, uh, Bahrain. What's it been like for you to watch um, crowds seize democracy in Egypt and Tunisia and, and Libya um, after, after knowing what happened in your country? Like, like what's it been like for yeah. you? I was shocked. I was thinking in the back of my head there was a thought that what if the United States have waited until now? Maybe Iraq would, be, would start 
uh, or withdrawing the club of of the countries that decided to liberate themselves from the dictators. But I always more logically thought that if it wasn't for the removal of Saddam Hussein, would it be possible for the Tunisian people and the Egyptian people to realize that those presidents are not gods? They can really, if they want to, they can really get, get rid of them. Let me ask you about something else. The attacks in Norway this past July, which killed mm-hmm. 92 people and which were mm-hmm. designed to stir hatred against immigrants and non-Christians mm-hmm. in Europe, mm-hmm. what was that like for you to witness that? Uh, the, the first hours before we actually find out who actually did it, I was really, to, to be honest, I was a bit afraid. Like, we don't need another uh, Muslim hero to commit something like that in a peaceful country uh, like Norway. And I was telling my wife that if it turned out that the perpetrators, the ones who did that attacks in Norway, are Muslims who exactly look like, like us, we would be at home for two, three days until everything clears out. Do you think your son will graduate high school in Norway? Do you, th- do you think you're going to be spending his entire childhood there? Uh, well, yes, I do. I do believe in that. Yeah. Uh, not because I don't want to go back, not because I, uh, uh, we're not missing Iraq, but because there's no improvement at all. So why would I uh, choose uh, this sort of life for my son, not having a, a clean hospital, not having electricity, having still threats from Al-Qaeda and from other religious groups? I would rather uh, decide to for my son to to go on with his life here. Act 5, Bad Teacher. In December 2006, roughly halfway between September 11, 2001 and today, we ran a story that generated more email than almost any story we have ever broadcast. The story was about a family, a happy family, whose names we changed on the radio. Five kids, including a daughter who we called Chloe, who was pretty, a good student, very popular. I had a lot of friends. We were into horses, basically, and we went over to each other's houses just to play with them, talk about them, and draw them. Chloe was 12 when we talked to her, but this story takes place back when she was eight. Her family was Muslim, and they were observant, and they lived in a suburb which didn't have many Muslims in it. Her mom liked it that way. She chose that area because she wanted them to have a life with all kinds of people in it. And 9-11 did not change anything for them. They weren't discriminated against. Chloe's friends didn't care that she was a Muslim. All fine. Until the first anniversary of 9-11 in 2002. Here's Chloe's mom, who we'll call Siri. I picked up the children from school that day, and she was um, in tears. She was inconsolable. She wasn't even making sense. She just was crying and crying. Apparently, as part of the lesson for the 9-11 anniversary, the teacher in Chloe's class had passed out a slim paperback intended to educate the students about the 9-11 tragedy. On the cover, it was a picture of the World Trade Center um, in flames. And the first thing was like, September 11 was a horrible day. Thousands and thousands died, and it said, who did it, we don't know, but here's a clue. Muslims hate Christians. Muslims hate Americans. Muslims believe that anyone who doesn't practice Islam is evil, and that the Quran teaches war and hate. There were some pictures of Muslim ladies wearing the headscarf, hijab, and some of them said, hey, those were ladies. Her mom's one of them. And then they just all looked at me and said, you're one of those bad Muslims, aren't you? And I just, I just said, no, no, I'm not. That's when the taunting began. Um, it was just overnight. They called me, like, loser Muslim and... Osama, like, they all saw me as a different person. Before reading the book, I was just a normal child. And then I turned into 
an Islamic extremist who hated the world and wanted to kill everybody. And there's a big difference there. Elise Spiegel, who reported this story for our show, picks up now with what happened next. The teasing just got worse from there. Even her siblings were targeted. Boys on the playground would surround her sister and pretend to pee. There was nothing Chloe could do to stop it. No matter what she said, it didn't matter. In part because the teacher of her class also seemed hostile to Muslims. And eventually, all of her friends stopped talking to her. This made her physically ill. She wouldn't get out of bed for days at a time. Some of her hair turned gray. She was eight. Now, in 2004, the U.S. Department of Justice actually did an investigation of what happened to Chloe and found that Chloe's teacher in the school had behaved inappropriately, contributing to an atmosphere where Chloe was brutally harassed by her peers. The Justice Department required the school to take a variety of actions, but in some ways by that point, it was already too late. Chloe had been so traumatized, she'd dropped out. And worse, her family had been torn apart. They'd picked up and moved away to put Chloe into a new school. But it wasn't far enough for Chloe's father. Chloe's father had grown up in the West Bank. And after what happened to his daughter, he decided that his family in particular, and Muslims in general, were no longer safe in America. America, he concluded, hated them. He wanted the family to move with him back to the West Bank. But Sari couldn't agree. I, well, I was born and raised in this country, and I'm aware of, you know, what makes this country great and... And I know that what happened to our family, it doesn't speak to American values. And I, I feel like this is such a fluke. <laughs> I have to believe this is, this is not what America's about. I, I know that. Um, but I, I don't think that's the same for my husband. So Sari and her husband divorced. Her husband moved to the West Bank alone, and she and the kids stayed in America. But when I called her recently, she told me that the last five years have not been good to her family, particularly, she says, to Chloe, who's now 17. Well, since then, she has been in three different schools. Each of those schools were a challenge. What kind of things would happen? Well, for example, at the high school, last this past school year, at one point, my daughter walked into the school library and about nine ROTC kids were seated at a table along with their instructor, and they began taunting her and calling her a raghead, saying she came from a religion of messed-up killers. So it's just been very hard. Hard in a bunch of ways. This past spring, Sari got the news that her ex-husband had died. And the civil lawsuit that the family had filed against Chloe's old school dragged on for years, a constant reminder of what had happened. Two weeks ago, the school settled for a tiny amount. Still, Sari says, despite all this, Chloe is mostly managing. She's a remarkable young lady. Um, She'll be entering her senior year of high school. And academically, she's doing great. It does concern me that she is not very social, The entire summer passed, and she never got together with any friends. What does she do with her days? Um, She hangs out with her siblings. They like to bake a lot. Probably the biggest change for Sari since I talked to her five years ago was that back then she was adamant that what had happened to her family was a fluke. And hundreds of our listeners actually wrote in to agree with her on this. She says at the time, she found these letters very reassuring. But slowly over the last five years, she's really changed her mind. This was no fluke. I think if I felt that way, it would be delusional. (laughs) Because the past, you know, seven years really speak for themselves. It's just been a barrage of intolerance and ugliness. And really, I feel like, you know, our world back then was turned upside down, and life as we knew it before is, is no longer what it was. Even the, the mosque that we used to attend, um, which is about 45 minutes away, someone randomly started shooting into the mosque. <laughs> and it's, um, I haven't been back since then because I just won't put my kids at risk. But, you know, that tells you that, you know, even 
amongst our so-called own kind, <laughs> amongst Muslims, we're really not safe. You know, we're, we're a community under siege. So this is where I try to figure out if Sarah's right, if Muslims in this country really are a community under siege. And that is a tricky question to answer. I can tell you that the number of hate crimes against Muslims are still much higher than they were before 9-11. In the last year for which the FBI provides statistics, 2009, hate crimes against Muslims constituted around 10% of all hate crimes nationwide, even though Muslims are only about 1% of the population. And according to a poll published last week by the Pew Research Center, the majority of Muslims are like Sari. They feel like 9-11 made their lives more difficult. But at the same time, around 80% say they're satisfied with their lives in the U.S. In other words, it's a complicated picture. It's complicated for Sari, too. She's American, her kids are American, and she doesn't want her children to give up on this country. And so she says she's given them some very targeted reading materials. The kids have read about Japanese Americans and what they've gone through, you know, post-World World War II, and eventually that passed. <laughs> um, I'm hoping that this will pass, too. When it will pass, though, is not entirely clear to Sari. So far, it's been 10 years since 9-11. So I don't know. I, I, I wish it would happen before the kids' childhoods are, are over. That would be really nice. This fall, the family's moving again, hoping that will help. Sari's looking for a job. Elise Spiegel is correspondent for NPR News. Act 6, Cutter. Let's end today's show with somebody who was at the World Trade Center on that day in 2001. When I first talked to Lynn Simpson less than two weeks after the towers collapsed, she was still having trouble sleeping. She'd escaped from the 89th floor, and she kept waking up, thinking about it. For the first several nights, I would wake up in the middle of the night and just have those images of the towers in my mind and the, and the smoke. And also, that was when I couldn't get the smell out of my hair, the very acrid dust smell. Yeah. And it's a smell that's on my clothes. I have the clothes that I was wearing that day, my shoes, my socks, my, you know, slacks, my top, even the little, I wear a little thing in my hair, which keeps my hair clipped back. And I don't know what to do with them. You still have them? I still have them. I can't, I don't know what to do with them. I, I don't want to throw them away. I don't want to have them cleaned. Why don't you want to throw them away or have them cleaned? I don't know. It, it's, it's, I don't know. I just, I can't quite let go of them. It is a bunch of trash, but... It happened to me, and I survived. Yeah. I just, uh, I just know that I, I have them in a bag, and I, I keep the bag in a little corner. And I, I will eventually do something with them because that's clutter, and clutter you know, is not good. But um, right now I just can't do that. So when you and I spoke uh, 10 years ago, you still had the clothes that you had worn that day to work, and, and you said that it was, it was hard to throw them out. So when did you finally throw out the clothes that you wore on September 11th? I didn't. Oh, you didn't? No, I didn't. I haven't done anything with them. I'm. Are they still in the little uh, bag on the floor? Reluctant to stay. They're they're in the little bag. However, they have moved from the um, from the floor in the corner into the top of a closet. So now the clutter's out of my sight. <laughs> that's good. Okay, that's a good system. Yeah. But I'm a little scared to look in them now. <laughs> and do you ever pull them out and 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 look at them? No. No. Lynn doesn't work now. She doesn't live in New York anymore. She's in Pennsylvania. She finds she can't even visit New York City. She's one of an estimated 10,000 first responders and civilians who suffer PTSD related to the 9-11 attack. The symptoms, they're jittery. They overreact to loud noises. They have trouble concentrating. Lynn says that she has no idea why she is one of the people who reacted this way and not one of the many people who went on with their lives. She still has an incredibly hard time sleeping. She's not replaying moments from 9-11 at night, she says. Now it's just a kind of free-floating anxiety. And just last month, a few weeks before the 10th anniversary, she finally sold her old apartment in Manhattan. She had renters there, figuring that eventually she'd move back. I didn't want to do it. I fought selling that apartment. 
Was part of signing the apartment, you had to admit to yourself, okay, I'm never going to get over this. Yes, mm-hmm. definitely. And it's very hard to admit that you're not going to be back to your old self. Whether it's something, whether you had an accident or hip surgery or, or whatever it is, you've changed. September 11th changed me. And no matter how much I try and talk myself into the fact that I'm going to get back to it, it's, I will go back, I will be the person that I was, it's not going to happen. And I'm, I've accepted that. And once I accepted it, it was okay. We spent this hour talking about what has changed in the last decade and what has happened because of 9-11. 9-11's become a symbol. It's become a rallying cry. But it was also a day, a terrifying day. So let's close our broadcast with Lynn's account from back then of what that day was like for her in the towers when the planes hit, escaping just a minute before the building collapsed. Well, there were five of us in the office. We were the early birds. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, there was an enormous crash and the building actually it it shook we could feel it shake the lights went out the sprinklers came on the ceiling came down the file cabinets fell everything started toppling and smoke immediately filled the entire office on the floor where you were how many how many floors were you from where the airplane hit i believe the airplane hit either just above or just about the 89th 90th 91st floor right the only reason that i'm here partly is because the airplane hit on the other side of the building. Mm -hmm. The lights were out, it was smoky, it was dim, and it was getting very hot. Um, I did try the um, emergency stairwell, and that door was locked. And we drank water, we covered our noses, and I I called, you know, my my boss, my uh, boyfriend, and my um, mother. What did you say? I I said to all of them, I'm all right. I don't know what's happened, but I'm all right. And I, I told John, I said, the doors are locked. I can't get out. I can't get down the stairway. A few minutes after that, people knocked on the door, and there were people, men with flashlights, knocking on the door saying, come out and let's go downstairs. The stairwell that you the hadn't been able to get into that before. that I had tried before. Yeah. Um, but then we started down, and about the 83rd floor, we had to, had to cross over and we crossed over. That floor was, was devastated. It was pitch black, full of smoke. The sprinklers were coming down. The ceiling had come down. We had to hold hands to walk across it. And the only light we basically had was one man's cell phone. And we, we made our way across that to another stairwell. And then we proceeded down, I believe, to 78. And so at 78, we had to cross to another set of stairs. And when we crossed on 78, it was as if nothing had happened. The lights were on, no smoke, um, air conditioning, carpeting. It was all perfect. How strange. That must have been so strange for you all. It was very peculiar, very peculiar to go from one extreme to the other. But at 78, we had to make a decision. There were two exit signs. And one. I've since learned that one exit went down to one floor and then stopped. It was just dead. And the other exit, which somebody said, trust me, I know we have to go down this staircase. And we did. We trusted that person, and we went down that staircase, and that led us to the bottom. Hmm. So, and then we continued down. We had to move over to the side because the firemen in full gear were coming up, and they started, they met us at about 50, and they started coming up. Yeah. And then we we simply continued down to the um, plaza level. They told us do not look up, do not look out, do not look down, just keep going. And we need you to hurry. Run. Could you jog? Well, our program was produced today by Nancy Updike and myself with Ben Calhoun, Sarah Koenig, Jonathan Menhevar, Lisa Pollock, Robin Semyon, and Alyssa Ship. Our senior producers, Julie Snyder. Production help from Mickey Meek. Seth Lind is our production manager. Emily Condon's our office manager. Special thanks today to Jack Hitt and Brent Renison. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. WBEC Management Oversight for our program by our boss, Mr. Tori Malatia, who's up late saying this after every story I do. I couldn't sleep tonight. It's because of that. I'm Eric Glass, back next week with more stories of this American life. We'll shuffle through the city on the 4th of July, had a firecracker waiting to blow. 
Breaking like a rapper who was making his way to the cities of Mexico. Living in a apartment out on Avenue A, out of town, a corner of town. Had myself a lover who was finer than gold, but I've been broken, I've been busted up since. Love don't play any games with me anymore like she did before. Public Radio International.